Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Podcast Goes To, a weekly podcast where we randomly select an Oscar-nominated movie and discuss it. This week, The Podcast Goes To, 1953's Roman Holiday. I'm Matt, joined by my co-host, Bob. What's up, dude? What's up, man? How are you? How was your week? Oh, man, just living the dream. Watched a classic. This movie's talked about a lot. This movie has some weight behind it. It's talked about a little bit more than Kiss of the Spider Woman was, for sure. I'm still not convinced, by the way. Uh, For those of you who listened last time, I'm still not convinced he's the Spider Woman or she's the Spider Woman. Do you want to do a little bit of cleanup from our last week's episode? Yeah, so what did we get wrong, Matt? What did we do this time? What have we done? (laughs) What have we done? There were a couple of things. Number one, uh, I went back and I rewatched the opening shot of the film because last week we talked about it being a very long one shot. Yeah, I said it was 15 minutes long, right? Yeah, you were close. It was two minutes and eight seconds. (laughs) So only off by a little bit. Um, It's like when I tell my my, uh, past sexual experiences, yeah, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. Nope, two minutes, eight (laughs) seconds. Hey, 67 milliseconds too, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, But in doing so, I did listen to the opening monologue again. And if you go back and re-listen to it, it sounds like she's talking about herself because she talks about a strange woman. And she was definitely strange. So I'm even more convinced now. However, one other thing we messed up is we started talking about that one actress who played three parts, including the Spider-Woman, but we never really followed through on that because that was sort of a weird thing because you would think that at the end, Melina would be the one playing the Spider-Woman if, in fact, he was symbolically the Spider-Woman. So I'm right? No, I still think you're wrong. I just think that that maybe there's something screwed up about the ending. The other thing is uh, I got some feedback, and apparently you're not alone in thinking that Valentine was killed at the end. Interesting. It was on the fence for me. Like, the guy gives him that weird drug, which will transition us nicely into Roman Holiday, and... He just starts dreaming, and it's like, okay, he could be dead. He could be asleep. I thought the drug was morphine. That's Yeah, he, he said it. I think he said morphine, but... And then he says, oh, I could get fired for this, which is kind of a weird thing to say if you're going to kill someone, because I think it goes without saying that you'd get fired if, you, if they found out you killed somebody. So I don't want to go too deep into the movie that we had a whole 50-minute <laughs> episode for last week. My thoughts were that he could get fired for this and what he was doing was putting him out of his misery so they don't torture him and get him to talk. Mm. He just kills him quietly so he doesn't have to, you know, he doesn't spill anything. Kind of like those spies who eat like the cyanide pills and die. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, agree to disagree, I guess. Um, so, <laughs> Like like everything. <laughs> so our next order of business is uh, for the third week in a row, we do have a new comment on the iTunes podcast app. And this one is from YGuy527. And he writes, This podcast is so funny and so interesting to listen to. It's my favorite podcast on Sunday nights. And Sunday nights are my favorite nights of the week because I know there is a new episode to listen to. I live for this podcast. I don't know who I would be without this podcast. So... (laughs) escalates a little bit towards the end but you get the the gist of it is that he really enjoys the show yeah that's kind of creepy i'm not gonna lie dude (laughs) 
I'm the worst. I'm insulting all of our fans. What's the name of this person again? Yguy527. Your friend or mine? <laughs> or just a rogue listener that doesn't know either of us? I like to think I like to think all three of them are rogue listeners, but I'm sure we're associated with all of them in some way. Well, shout out to Yguy. Thank you for the kind words. Hopefully we won't disappoint you this Sunday evening. Maybe we'll come out with the episode on Monday morning just to screw with them. Ooh, very disappointing. So uh, a few minutes ago, you made a sort of weird comment. You said that the strange drug is a perfect transition into Roman holiday. That I did. I'm very curious what you mean by that. So let's go ahead and jump right into the movie. I have seen Roman Holiday before. Bob has not. And this was Bob's first Roman Holiday experience. So, Bob, what were your thoughts? It was an adorable 1950s movie. I've seen it a million times. It's super predictable. But I feel like that's because other things have kind of used this movie as a template. I enjoyed it. I I thought it was a cute movie. Super easy story to follow. Some older movies I find are like slow and kind of confusing and I don't really get what's going on. This one was was pretty clear cut vanilla for me. So, yeah, I think vanilla is probably a good word to use. I so, stole it from you. <laughs> oh, that is a very good word to use then. So the basic premise of Roman Holiday is um, we're introduced to Princess Anne, who's played by Audrey Hepburn in her debut role. And she's tired of being the princess, and so she runs away one night and ends up meeting Joe Bradley, played by Gregory Peck, who is a journalist. And upon realizing that he has uh, met the princess, he proceeds to lie to try and get a story out of it. Predictably enough, they fall in love and hilarity ensues pretty basic premise here we're not dealing with we're not reinventing the wheel with this storyline but like you said it was cute it was fun it was light and honestly it was a pretty good break from um the some of the heavy material that we've covered in the first three weeks yeah that's for sure (laughs) this is the first of uh the first of the movies that we've watched that has not dealt with war at all and in fact it really didn't deal with much of anything at all you think about all the topical themes of some of the first movies we saw homosexuality war, identity. This is more about, I don't know, a young girl who's bored. And so she runs away and has a little fun day in Rome and then gets back to business. Yeah. The the movie starts out with that scene where she's introducing herself herself to all the all the important people that showed up to like shake her hand and she's just one after another. She's introducing herself to this person to that person and then it just cuts to her foot. You remember this in the beginning of the film? Yeah. It starts out you're just in this, you know, big castle ball whatever and then it just cuts to her foot and it cuts to her foot again and then you see her take her foot out of the shoe and kind of stretch it out i was like all right where where is this movie going and then she drops the shoe and apparently that's a big deal because you're a princess you're supposed to stand up straight and not drop your shoe and the woman her like not her maid but her the countess i think the countess yeah her eyes <laughs> they like pop out of her head when she sees the shoe on the floor not on her foot <laughs> She, like, loses it. You remember this scene? Yeah. I wondered if some of these older actors and actresses were holdovers from the silent film days because they emoted very well in this scene. Yeah, I really thought that was great. It was the perfect introduction to this character. So here's someone who's supposed to be graceful and elegant, and she is, like, her feet are sore. And so you're painted this picture of someone who's just, just like an average person. 
but she recovers. So she's a little bit average, but she still has that grace. And I think that is the perfect intro. And then from there, we go into the scene where she's getting ready for bed and she is going over her itinerary for the next cup, the next day. And she's giving these sort of lackadaisical answers like, oh, you'll be offered this. Oh, yes, thank you. No, you're not supposed to say that. No, thank you. And then you'll be offered this. Yes, thank you. And I love that scene, too, because you can tell she's just so bored because every day is the same routine. Yeah, that was a funny scene to me where she where she's like, oh, and I accept. It's like, you will not accept. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was it was adorable. That's the whole movie, like sort of serious with just like little like slapsticky jokes stuck in there as many as they could fit. It, it, it was cute. I, I, I loved it. It was, it was little little laughter uh, every step of the way. And I'm sure for a 1950s audience that th- these jokes would have been even even funnier than than a viewer today so yeah so the raciest part of the film comes early which is that she's given a sedative and so after she's given the sedative she escapes and she falls asleep on a park bench and she's sort of picked up by joe who's on his way home from a poker game um which can you be more average than a guy named joe coming home from a poker game where he only has five dollars left to his name (laughs) yeah that was that was pretty awesome (laughs) He's like, here's the establishment of this character. His name is Joe. He's wearing a suit. He's smoking cigarettes and playing poker with his buddies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit on the nose. I even to the point where I was like, well, wait a minute. Is this where the term average Joe came from? Like, that's how stupid I am with like when things were created. Because I was like, well, for the 50s, that seems like a good time for a guy named Joe to be considered average average joe and no it turns out it's from like the 1800s but anyway that's besides the point my name's bob and your name's matt so <laughs> we're not much better <laughs> i think we're above average do, do you need me to read the comments from the podcast app again we're considered <laughs> above average by as many as three people three wonderful people <laughs> including who know know what they're talking about banana dude 69 and bad boy big upset are definitely the kind of people whose opinions we should take seriously. But anyway, so we run in so these two characters run into each other. It's a collision of worlds. Low class meets high class and she's drugged out of her mind and Gregory Peck's character Joe thinks that she's drunk, tries to get her in a cab to get her home and she's just so wasted she can't even tell the driver where she is supposed to go home to. So he ends up taking her back to his apartment. And I don't know about you, maybe it's just 2018 us, and maybe 1953 was different. Uh, there's just no way that current day I would in, I would do that with a woman, and I don't think it would even I don't even think it would fly to see that in a movie nowadays. Yeah, it was kind of creepy. Yeah. At first he like he's like, oh, get in the cab, I'll give you a ride, and then then they're like, oh, where do you live? And she's like, the Coliseum. Clearly not where she lives. <laughs> and and he's like oh cab driver just you do what you want with her (laughs) he was like trying to leave and leave her in the cab (laughs) which is also a big weird no-no cab drivers not the most trusty i hope our three fans aren't 
all cab driver. <laughs> but like you're in Italy, this like Italian cab driver dude, and you just like leave her. It's like ah, I couldn't figure out where she's going, but you'll you'll just deal with it. Here's yeah, some he money. Like gives her some money. Yeah, but then <laughs> but then the cab driver threatens to tell. I guess there's like a police officer off screen and and joe's like no absolutely not don't and that's when he's sort of like okay come on come with me up to my room and uh, they reference it in the morning though did you notice that that they subtly hint there's like some subtle sex humor in there she like lifts up the blanket really fast to check to make sure she's wearing pants yeah it it was almost like she just assumed they slept together even though he knew that they didn't yeah and then she he never really is like clearly states we did not sleep together yeah that was kind of straight i didn't think much of it when i was watching the film but that that's a good point she yeah she hints that they kind of slept together he never denies it and then it's never talked about again for all she knows she slept with him and like it's in her head you know? <laughs> yeah because doesn't she say we slept together in the same room or something like that and he's like well uh, that's a that's one way to put it and that's just sort of the answer that he gives so that that's about as edgy as it gets for the entire movie, except for maybe the scene where the friend is taking photographs of some woman on a balcony with a fishing hook. That's just called art, Matt. I don't know <laughs> if you understand art, but that's he was making art. OK, yeah. So there's this other character <laughs> played by Eddie Albert called Irving, Irving Radovich which is an interesting last name because Dalton Trumbo wrote the script, who was a blacklisted communist, and we will get more into that later. And um, Irving is sort of, I guess, the slap-happy sidekick to Joe, and he's sort of the goofier one of the two, and he, and he sort of plays off of Joe and Anne for the rest of the movie. And we're introduced to him at the poker game, but then our second introduction is he's at his house and I think he has a fishing hook attached to a woman's leg. And then he yanks the fishing hook really quick and something happens off camera and then he snaps a photo. Is that what is that what was going on there? So it looked like he was taking some weird like model photo and the model was fishing and he attached the fishing line to his leg so he can get like a reaction out of her like catching a fish oh okay that's what it looked like to me either way it doesn't really explain itself and they never go into what the (laughs) hell was going on there but i think that's the point it's like photographers they're always doing the damnest things for the job so he plays a photographer and joe eventually learns so at first joe doesn't know that the person he has in her in his bed is the princess he just thinks it's some drunk girl and then he goes to work and he sees a news article that says princess anne has taken ill and has canceled all her appointments for the day and she he realizes that actually he basically has her kidnapped in his apartment right now So he rushes home because he thinks that he's going to get a sweet deal. And these are the stakes of the movie, which is if he can get a story, his boss will give him like a thousand bucks, right? I think it was five thousand. Okay, so if he... The bet was, yeah, he gave him five thousand if he got the story. And if he didn't get the story, he had to give his boss five hundred. Yeah, so so those are the stakes. And for somebody who's kind of down in his luck, like uh, the landlord says that he owes him two months rent and he owes his boss money. So he owes all these people money. So that's why the stakes are a little high for him. He needs this story because it's for his survival. And so he runs home and he gives his friend a call 
who's photographing the woman with the fishing hook, and he wants to get photographs of Princess Anne out on the town, and he considers this to be a huge story. And so we have this setup of a character who is lying about his intentions and a character who is lying about their identity. And that's sort of the fun of the film is there's the identity thing and the lying and it goes back and forth because the audience knows all the information. And so we get to see these characters who are missing out on information sort of interact with one another. Yeah, so I found it very interesting that Joe goes into work late and the the person in the office is like, oh, the boss has been looking for you. And he goes into the boss's office and he's like, why weren't you at work? Blah, 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 like yelling at him. And he gives this this crap excuse that he calls him out on. He was like, oh, I was interviewing the princess. I was like, the princess is sick. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to get the story anyway. And then leaves the office the whole day. And I was like, if, if, if his job was like he had to be in at a certain time and it was so strict that his boss was mad at him for not being in the office, how is he able to just leave work the whole day after just talking to him for two minutes with the same excuse he, he got called out on like five five minutes ago? <laughs> yeah, the boss just – I think the boss is more than happy to just like let him go on his merry way and just be firing him soon. Because even at the end of the conversation, he's like, so am I fired? And he's like, no, you're not fired. But like I almost feel like the boss wants him to fail at this new task so he can finally fire him. So he's like, all right, go. You're useless here anyway. And the boss is funny. The boss, like, eggs him on for a while. Like, oh, you interviewed the princess. What was she wearing? Oh, what did she say about trade relations? And just Joe just gives these terrible bullshit answers. Like, he's clearly a bad bullshitter. Like, his whole shtick is that he's a bullshitter and he's horrible at it. And so he's, like, in debt. Basically. And he made some comment like he's, I'm going to make that money and buy a plane ticket and get out of here. So it almost seems like he went to italy to like do some news story as a reporter lost all his money and doesn't have enough to like move back to the u.s yeah so he's just stranded yeah he's just stranded there and he's like once i win this bet i'm going back to new york city and i'm leaving all you guys behind yeah it was interesting i guess there's just a whole band of american people reporting the news in rome it was almost like everyone was american except for the cab driver (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the cab driver was just a horrible <laughs> stereotype of an Italian dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does make sense that everyone would be American. This was the first film made by an American studio shot entirely in Italy. And one of the reasons why it was shot there was the director, whose name is William Wyler, who I don't know if you knew this, but he also directed Ben-Hur. And we were joking about how we didn't have time for Ben-Hur. So luckily we got another one of his movies. He wanted he wanted to shoot the film entirely in Italy. And Paramount, uh, which was the studio behind the film, they had frozen funds that were blocked off from after the war. They couldn't get them out of Italy, so they had to spend them in the country. So they were more than happy to have him shoot the entire film there. And the only catch was it was going to be cheaper to shoot in black and white than in color. So originally the movie was going to be shot in color, but back then it was much more expensive to shoot in color. So Weiler had to sort of make the concession that they'll shoot it in Italy, but they'll shoot it in black and white. And it was, it must've been a big deal because in the opening credits of the movie, it tells you that this movie was shot entirely in Italy, which I found really interesting for like an opening credits. Like normally viewers aren't that interested in where the movie was shot and maybe they'll check on it later but right smack dab in the opening of the film this movie was shot in italy so i guess 
that kept people uh, in their seats, not not leaving the theaters. <laughs> yeah. And did you notice, I don't know which version you watched, but did you notice that Trumbo was in the credits? He was. He was in this. Yeah. Yeah. I was a little shocked by that. I guess that's a fairly new development. Like in 2011, they put his name in the credits. Yeah. I don't know exactly when it happened, but if you go on the Oscar website too, it also has his name there. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know who this Trumbo person is that we keep referencing. Uh, so Dalton Trumbo wrote the script. It, it was an Oscar nominated script. Actually, it won the Oscar for best writing motion picture story. And uh, the only problem was Dalton Trumbo was a communist and he was one of 10 who were blacklisted by Hollywood and he was not allowed to work on movies. So he had to write and never reveal that it was him who was writing these scripts. He had to give these scripts to other writers who took all the credit. In this case, what was the guy's name? Oh, Ian. So Ian McClellan was the one who accepted the Oscar, and he was the one who was originally credited as having written it. But it was, in fact, Dalton Trumbo who wrote it while in exile in Mexico following a prison sentence for failure to disclose his political beliefs to the Un-American Activities Committee which is a pretty weird sort of thing that existed. (laughs) Yeah, basically at the time, American people were scared of communism taking over. And because of this, they blacklisted some screenwriters (laughs) and uh, filmmakers in the industry. And Dalton Trumbull was one of those. So he ended up just kind of ghostwriting. If you go on his IMDb page, which I'm on right now, he has like hundreds of scripts with his name on it. And a lot of them just say unconfirmed or uncredited on them. So there's actually a movie about him, a biopic. I think it was 2015. So it was called Trumbo. It's starring Brian Cranston as Dalton Trumbo. And it kind of dives into the story, which is a pretty interesting film. Did you catch it? Yeah, I did. And Brian Cranston looks absolutely nothing like Dalton Trumbo, but I still appreciated his portrayal of the character especially when he was writing in a bathtub yeah just like winston churchill uh thinking of speeches in the toilet (laughs) yeah dalton trumbo had his special like tv dinner tray that he'd use in the bathtub to write yeah so (laughs) fbi agents were alerted to trumbo when he wrote in an article that if he were a russian this is sort of like oj simpson if i did it this is how i would if i were a russian i would be alarmed by the u.s military power that surrounded me and I would petition my government to take measures at once against what would seem an almost certain blow aimed at my existence. This is how it must appear in Russia today. So you can understand that maybe he should have been keeping his mouth shut. But in 1943, he openly joined the Communist Party, so he was not afraid to speak his mind. And do you think it's sort of weird that someone like him, his image has completely changed over the years? Yeah, well, what was it, in 1992... At the Oscars, they kind of they gave him the the Oscar. He was already dead, but they gave him the credit for Roman Holiday for winning that screenplay, and everything was kind of forgiven at that point. So it's sort of like all of his, everything he said politically was sort of wiped under the rug a little bit. But I mean, your political views shouldn't shouldn't have anything to do with you being recognized for movies you made or anything like that. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. But yeah, I think that it's possible to separate a person's personal life and their artistic achievements for sure. Indeed. Indeed. So there's a lot more to talk about uh, Trumbo. Unfortunately, we have to move on. It's time 
to pick our decade for next week's episode. Already, so I feel you, like we just got started. I know. <laughs> we we need to make this podcast three hours an episode. So big banana boy, wheezy guy can all they can all be happy with us. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, which is probably zero people, we pick a movie randomly each week and then that next week we talk about the film. So we narrow it down three times. We narrow it down by the decade, then we narrow it down to the year, and then we pick a best picture nominee from that year. So Matt, you wanna load up the decades in our random generator see what we come up with they're loaded up and ready to go Uh oh i'm nervous i'm nervous i don't know what we're gonna get i think we're i think we're moving forward in time again yeah we'll see what happens maybe something recent yeah i I could go for a recent film (laughs) okay next week the podcast goes to 1920s (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just as recent as it can get oh boy all right i don't i honestly don't think that there are much to choose from i think the 1920s i think the oscars started in um in uh, 1928 so we'll take a quick break and we'll come right back Welcome back to The Podcast Goes To. This week, we're talking about Roman Holiday from 1953. So before we jump back into the film, we're going to continue on with our stolen segment from our good friend Christian Renzi (laughs) and his wonderful podcast. Matt, what are you watching these days? Well, I saw Pitch Perfect 3 over the weekend. It was fun. It was fun. And I saw uh, Love, Simon, which was What's that? I, awesome. I haven't heard of that. Uh, it's a movie about a, um, a high school senior who is, hasn't come out of the closet yet, and someone from his school anonymously comes out of the closet. Like, he posts on this school webpage that he's gay but won't reveal his identity, and they become sort of internet pen pals, and they're... So it's just sort of about him struggling with his homosexuality and whether to tell his friends and family and all that. So it was um, better than I'm making it sound. I'm making it sound like it's very generic, but it's not. It was really good. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I know. I actually do know what you're talking about. I saw previews for it. It was cute for about the first half. And then I so full disclosure, I am a crier. I am a big time movie crier. Like, I cried at the end of Roman Holiday the first time I saw it. That is the kind of movie crier I am. So, safe to say, I spent the second half of this movie bawling my eyes out. But um, not the second half of Roman Holiday. You cried during Roman Holiday? (laughs) I cried at the ending. I thought the ending was sad. So, I'm a crier, too, but I did not cry at the end of this movie. (laughs) I guess it just could have been just the mood I was in. But we should... So so far, I haven't... Because I didn't cry this time at the end. But we should keep track of... uh, of depressing endings to movies. So I cry to things that you shouldn't cry for. So there is one film that I cry every time, multiple times in the film when I watch it. And I'll give you a hint. Matthew McConaughey is in the film. 
and it was directed by Christopher Nolan. Oh, dude. Oh, no. I'm right there with you, man. (laughs) Interstellar. Interstellar makes me cry so much. Me too, man. It's... It's so crazy. I I cry. I cry when he watches uh, Jessica Chastain's like voice message when he's gone twenty years, and he just he has this humongous no Sean Marino tears on his face. Oh yeah. I cry. I cry there. I cry when he like rescues the spaceship after freaking Matt Damon blows it up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) For some reason, I cry. I cry like five times in that movie, and it's just. I think it's everything's weird. It might be. It might be. Because at mean, the end of Dunkirk, I got a little teared up, and that movie wasn't very emotional. And then it, ti- and then there was like a tipping point where it got too emotional. Because then there was like that deaf, dumb kid who ends up dying, and then they go home to like see that his name is in the paper. And I'm like, no, this is getting too cheesy. But there was that sweet spot where the plane is sort of coasting over the beach, and Hans Zimmer's score is playing. That I get a little choked up. Yeah. I, maybe it is Hans Zimmer. I, I gotta re, go back and look at movies I cry in and see. You should <laughs> see watch if it's it on just mute. Hans Zimmer. Watch it on mute and see if it gives you the same feeling. Oh, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Does Hans Zimmer make you cry in the Simpsons movie with the Spider Pig song? <laughs> Did he write Spider Pig? Not the like the original, but they make like a like a crazy over sophisticated version of it. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I think it's in the credits of the movie. <laughs> Where it's like opera singing, Spider Pig, Spider Pig. And it's like, oh my god. So, yeah, what, what are you watching? So, I just binge watched the second season of Marvel's Jessica Jones. Oh. Yeah. So, Jessica Jones was one, like the first season of Jessica Jones, probably my favorite of all of them. And this show, it started out, I was like, oh, I have an hour to kill before I have to go to bed. I'll watch the first episode, see what happens. Next thing I know, my roommate's waking up and going to work. Oh, my God. (laughs) I got sucked into this show. And then, I don't know, by episode seven, I I hated the crap out of it. (laughs) It went from, like, the most... This thing, it had so many twists and, like, so many things going on at once. And it was just, like, I had to know. And I had to keep watching it. And then, by the end, I just stopped caring about all of it. And I just had to finish it so i could end my pain <laughs> so it has everything that that season it was pretty crazy maybe because i watched it all at once it kind of ruined it for me i don't know that's sort of what happened to me with the new star trek discovery it was one of those things where they don't really know how to write and they think just throwing a bunch of twists in is good storytelling but meanwhile you don't care about anything that's happening and anytime there's a surprise, you sort of either see it coming or it happens, but there's sort of there's no stakes. So you really don't care. And then a character that, uh, you know, you've known for five weeks turns out to be a bad guy, but then he gets killed off five minutes later. So you don't get to feel the ramifications of that reveal. It's stuff like that. Yeah. It's just such sloppy writing. I'm, w- I'm with you on that. I, I haven't watched the Star Trek shows that star trek's i don't know it's a little too serious for me when it should be goofy which is why the oroville is is the shit <laughs> i love that show yeah it's like the start it's like what star trek should have been instead they make discovery yeah I, that's that's how i feel about it it's like star trek it's like what's going on is a little too goofy and cheesy to be so serious yeah that but I Seth like MacFarlane just makes it so so pleasing where 
the stakes are still serious, but they they crack jokes, you know, the whole the whole step of the way. So I enjoy that. Yeah, they crack jokes in some of the Star Treks. Well, it's, I, well, to be fair, I, I don't watch much of it. So. Yeah, so you're passing judgment <laughs> on something you haven't seen. But the point yeah. is well taken. The new one, Discovery, they do not crack jokes, and it's just way too serious. So. Interesting. But So let's transition back into the film. So we're talking about the 1954 Oscars with the 1953 films. Am I seeing this right? This was nominated for 10 awards? Yeah, buddy. I mean, they do get some help. Because a lot of the categories in the 1950s, which I find really cool, is there a split between black and white and color. So costume design, there's a black and white, there's a color. Art direction, there's a black and white, there's a color. Cinematography, black and white and color. Really interesting. Yeah, and how about Walt Disney just mopping up? Like, he wins, he wins like, the black and white and the color and all the shorts. And, all, like, <laughs> he is an absolute monster. I think, yes, in, I think in this he one, is a he monster. Won, yeah, I think in this <laughs> one, I think he won for um, short live action one reel and best documentary short as well. Uh, I don't know if you watched the 1954 Oscars. Oh, man. I, I watched some clips. And it opens up by saying that the Oscars that year were sponsored by Oldsmobile. I guess they don't do that anymore. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah. It's like, this year, sponsored by Oldsmobile. What it's about like, the, okay. Did you notice that the stage, it was just like random ferns and then some golden <laughs> chairs set up in the background? Like, I don't know if at some point throughout the show, people went and sat in the chairs and like looked out at the audience or what that was all about. I don't know, but from the clips I watched, there are there are a few John Wilkes Booth Abe Lincoln jokes. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> it was sort of weird. Which is which is pretty interesting. So this film won Best Actress, Audrey Hepburn, well deserved. You think so? Cost- I I thought she was great in it. I don't know what her competition was like. I didn't see all the films that year. Yeah, I thought she was awesome in it. You were and it busy. wasn't like a legacy award. This was her first. Yeah, like, fuck you. She was like 22 years old. That shit. Oh, my God. That drives me crazy. When you're good, you're good. I'm freaking Audrey Hepburn we're talking about. I know, man. I'm just (laughs) at that point in my life where people are people way younger than me are starting to accomplish things. Like, I think I passed a point a couple years ago where I was watching sports and I was like, oh, no, everyone's younger than me that I'm watching right now. Like, I've reached a point where now I'm I'm starting to not be in my the prime years of my athletic life. It's very sad. And same when, when young people win awards. Like, it used to be, man, if if Audrey Hepburn can win an award at 22, maybe someday I will, too, because I'm, like, 16, and now that that is never going to happen. I used to think I was going to be the youngest, like, oh, the youngest, best, best-selling author and all this, and I still have a shot at oldest best-selling author, but as of right now, Audrey Hepburn beat me to the Oscar, and... I she beat me to a bestseller too. I think she wrote a book. So it's okay, Matt. Just to break it to you, you're old as shit, and you're gonna die soon. So thanks, man. There's <laughs> little little comfort thought. You're so much older than me, and I have so much more life ahead of me. <laughs> I keep saying that you're uh, in the podcast. It's at least come up one other time. I think you're a year and a half older than me. Yeah, big difference. Thanks, man. But it's all about how you feel, and I feel old as shit. Well, I ran sprints this morning in the rain, in the darkness, because the sun didn't rise yet. And it's not making me feel any younger, Matt. No, no, I I have to walk about 10 to 15 feet to get to the copy machine at work. 
And oh my God, every time I have to stand up from my desk, it's torture. Like I'm starting to do that like dad thing where every time you stand up, you kind of go, you know, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about? And it's like every single time, like, oh, my knees. I don't know why. It's not like I've lived a taxing life. (laughs) These, (laughs) These are the kind of things I think about when Audrey Hepburn wins the 1953 Oscar for Best Actress. Despite age, you don't think she deserved this award? Oh, I thought you said AIDS. So she didn't have AIDS that I'm aware of. AIDS she wasn't was, a thing back she then. She was very thin. What does AIDS have to do with being thin? Because you lo- didn't you see Dallas Buyers Club? Oh, wait, no, you were too busy weeping to Matthew McConaughey's <laughs> performance in Inception. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> no, I, no, I mean, I, I, it was a very charming role. Okay, I didn't think that her character was overly complex to the point where she wowed us with her performance. I mean, she played an aloof princess who she wasn't used to being out in the world and she wanted to expose herself to new things like haircuts and ice cream as if she'd never gotten a haircut and never had a scoop of ice cream in her life. And I sort of just felt like she played a kind of dummy character. But then the ending sort of tells me that she wasn't as dumb as... She was portrayed. She decides that uh, she needs to serve her country over her love for Joe. And I liked that decision at the end. But I think that's more strength of the writing than it was of her performance. I guess that's fair. I just, I, I was captivated by her. I thought she was amazing. I also thought the guy who played Joe Bradley, Gregory Peck, I thought he was really good too. And he wasn't even nominated. Yeah, he was freaking awesome. I mean, he's he's another one who just kills it with the Oscars. He won for To Kill a Mockingbird. He was nominated for 12 O'Clock High, The Yearling, Gentleman's Agreement, Keys to the Kingdom. So he, he definitely got his dues. But yeah, well, the thing is that he wasn't the lead. And originally he was going to turn down the role because he felt that Audrey Hepburn's character was the lead. And at that point, he was a leading action hero in the early 50s. But he was coaxed into doing it. And one of the more astonishing things I learned about him after the fact is that he forced Paramount to up Audrey Hepburn's pay so that they were paid equal wage, which is way ahead of his time, because that's something that we're still fighting in 2018. And he was doing it as far back as 1953. Well, he's just a gentleman, just like the the character he plays in the movie, where there's drugged woman wanders into his room ask her asks him to undress her and he he takes the moral high ground yes very big of him to not assault her but i mean they were two they're let's let's face it they were two really good looking charming people together on a screen it's really hard to screw that up all audrey hepburn had to do was sort of smile and bop around and she fit her character perfectly I mean, Audrey Hepburn is, like, drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, she's just electric. Woogie, woogie, woogie. So, I mean, I don't see her... I, you know, you look at, like, Margot Robbie in Wolf of Wall Street. That was a pretty great role, but I, I don't think she deserved the Oscar. I think that she was just really hot and charming. I guess it's fair. I mean, I, I love Margot Robbie, personally. Oh, yeah. So then, it was interesting. It was still very interesting to me when I when I read the... After watching the film, I read who was nominated and all that. And Eddie Albert for supporting actor over Gregory Peck for actor. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit surprising. So, yeah, Irving was nominated for best supporting actor. Didn't win, but was nominated. Honor just to be nominated. And, um, I mean, his character is sort of 
even simpler. I mean, he sort of is like a slapstick humor kind of character. I mean, he's gets water spilled on, he gets knocked over in his chair because he basically he comes and he meets them for lunch and he immediately recognizes that this woman looks like the princess because she is. And he starts to say, hey, you sort of look like the princess. And Gregory Peck sort of tips his chair over, spills coffee on him, does whatever just to get him to shut up. And that happens then at the end of the movie again. So he's sort of like a slapstick character. Then we have costume design, black and white, Edith Hen. I'm sorry, Edith Head for the win. And she's like, (laughs) she's like the most iconic costume designer in Hollywood. Wouldn't you agree? Yep, the most honored woman in Academy history. 35 nominations. And I was looking, and there were some years she won for black and white and color on the same year. Yeah, that's crazy. So have you seen the movie The Incredibles, the Disney animated <laughs> film? <laughs> yeah. So you know that the character Edna, the one who designs all the costumes for the superheroes, is based off of Edith Head. I, that's amazing. I didn't know that, but yeah. I definitely see the resemblance. Does Edna wear the same um, the same glasses that Edith yep. wore? Mm-hmm. That is awesome. So Edith, yeah. So Edith Head, um, if you look up pictures of her, you'll see this. But she wore these iconic blue lens glasses, and I always thought it was a stylistic choice. But it turns out that um, costume designers often wore these because it gave them an idea of how the wardrobe would photograph when it was in black and white. So it was sort of like a filter to help them see better. But yeah, Samson and Delilah and All About Eve, uh, the same year she won for wardrobe for color and black and white. And she was nominated for each consecutive year from 1949 to 1967, which coincidentally was the year that they eliminated the black and white and color categories and combined them. But what a fucking streak. Incredible. So I watched the clip for when they gave the costume design awards out (laughs) at the Oscars that year. And I thought it was really cool. They actually had people come out, models come out on stage for each film. They'd announce each film and a model would be wearing costume from that movie on stage to kind of present what the costumes looked like before they gave out the award. Oh, that's really cool. I wonder how yeah. I wonder how long the Oscars were that year. Not too long because most of the people didn't give speeches. So like Edith Head didn't give a speech. They just gave her the award and she walked away. So I think only like the actors and best picture and director got speeches. Oh. Not all the awards are speech worthy it seemed like. I sort of like that. I guess we're yeah, sort of reaching a point where everyone needs to get their time, but everything is just also so long now that they sort of they cut out interesting things like i would have really liked to see that so the writing category they they have this dude just holding a piece of paper that says the title of the script and who wrote it and then they read out the nomination and then the hand just grabs another piece of paper and puts it down (laughs) and that was the next nomination so the oscar ceremony was one hour and 55 58 minutes long and if Edith Head gave a speech, it would have been a lot longer. <laughs> you think so, huh? No, no, I don't. She's probably busy <laughs> designing another movie. She probably was. I read that she doesn't even do. She didn't even do her own sketches. She had a team of people who would do the sketches for the wardrobes for her. Maybe the movie Phantom Thread is actually about Edith Head. It's called. Actually, it's called Phantom Head. <laughs> <laughs> Can we make a point to talk about Phantom Thread every single week? <laughs> I would be absolutely thrilled if we could talk about (laughs) Phantom Thread every week. Actually, it's time to narrow down our 
decade into a specific Oscar year. Two years to choose from, so this should be interesting. Next week, the podcast goes to 1928, the inaugural year of the Academy Awards. Ooh, we're going to have to do some special, special inaugural stuff uh, to talk about this year. So I'm excited about 1928. Me too. The original ceremony was 15 minutes long and was watched by 270 viewers. So was it 15 minutes long or was it two minutes and eight seconds long? (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a quick break and come right back. Today's episode is brought to you by... Chloe Renee, are you interested in knowing someone with impeccable taste who also happens to be the funniest out of all their siblings? Boy, do I have a sponsor for you. Not only is Chloe a fan of the show, she also devotes her life to the church of rap god, Marshall Mathers, and happens to be the funniest member of her family, according to multiple anonymous sources. She's funny. She's smart. She's Chloe. All right, welcome back to The Podcast Goes To. This week, The Podcast Goes To Roman Holiday. So, Matt, is this two weeks running? Are are we starting to pay our bills here? I think so. I I was thinking that maybe we need to do, like, if you want your ad in the first break, it's $2, and the second break is $1. I I know I owe you your cut of 50 cents per ad, by the way. I was just about to say, I haven't seen any of this money. (laughs) Where is my money, Matt? (laughs) And while I'm asking you for money, I'm sitting in my apartment room right now, and the girl next door pays us $10 a month. For our internet password and she hasn't paid me so where's my money Brittany? anyway <laughs> so what are your th- what what other thoughts do you have about the movie okay so let's let's talk about how it how it sums up so at the end the they finally everyone finds out who who each other is so the two reporter characters are at the press conference and princess she sees them. Is this where you cry, Matt? Uh, no. No, I don't cry yet. Although I, that was a really fun, chill-inducing moment. And I think in that moment, she, she realizes just how much they cared about her because they treated her so well when they could have exploited her. Yeah, so I think at first in this scene, she's like, oh, crap. They're the press and they were using me. And then when he gives her the photos that they never published. Yeah, so basically Irving throughout their entire jaunt through rome for the day irving's taking all these candid photos of her she smokes her first cigarette she's riding on a vespa she hits a guy over the head with a guitar (laughs) which i which is awesome like if i was like do it again do it again because he missed the shot the first oh yeah do it again smitty they call her smitty for some reason and well because she lied and said her last name was smith oh right right anya smith then in the end gregory peck tells Irving that he's not going to run with the story and Irving's mind is blown. But then he, even he sort of has a, you know, good soul moment where he just gives her all the photos to keep as, as a keepsake. The character made no sense to me. Irving's character. He's super busy doing his weird, like fishing line photos. And then Joe calls him. He's like, I need you to take photos. It's top secret, blah, blah, blah. There'll be money. It'll be worth your while. And he's like, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. 
Then he just randomly bumps into him at the restaurant. Doesn't tell him he's going to be at the restaurant because he doesn't know he was going to be at the restaurant. He just followed her around town. He, like, spills drink on him and knocks his chair over and is a complete dick to him. And then he's like, oh, oh, sorry. I just, just getting you to shut up. I, I want you to do this. You're going to get all this money. It'll be worth it. And he's like, okay, I have all this shit to do today. But you know what? I'm not going to do any of it. I'm going to help you out all day and take all these photos. He takes photos all day. Works all day. Then at the end of the movie, he gets more shit spilled on him and knocked over more. And then after all that, he's immediately like okay with not publishing the photos and making a quick buck. It just didn't make any sense to yeah, me. Yeah, Joe even says, I, I'm not going to hold it against you if you run with the story. I can't keep you from doing it. The char- I agree. The character, the character arc absolutely makes no sense. He third-wheeled the entire day taking all these photos and gets absolutely nothing out of it except the memory, I guess, which doesn't yeah. seem to f- mean anything to him. But he wasted his whole day, all that film. Yeah, which must have then- been expensive. Yeah, to the point where Joe, who's a reporter, doesn't even have his own camera. Yeah, but did you <laughs> so notice sure. Irving had, like, a camera in a, in a cigarette lighter? Yeah, so that bothered me, too. So it's like, okay, it's 1950. You have a lighter that has, like, a spy camera in it that shoots film. So it has film in it, <laughs> which is flammable. Film is flammable. For those of you who don't know, who haven't seen Inglorious Bastards... <laughs> it's more flammable than paper, as Samuel L. Jackson says in his weird little voiceover part of Inglorious Bastards. And he's taking pictures with it, and it's a working lighter. It actually lights up. <laughs> is that something that would have existed back then, or is that some made-up garbage? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was made back then, so I guess someone had the concept of, let's do this. I just, I don't know. The lighter was a little too much for me. If it was like a button on his shirt, I would have, I would have been happier. Or like a pen where, camera. Where would the film have been? But that's my point. If the lighter works and there's actual fire and like kerosene in the lighter or whatever, film is flammable. Well, I'm sure it was in its own compartment. I don't think it was bathing in where? the kerosene. There's <laughs> How a... small was this camera? <laughs> it, was, well, it must have been really small. It just and then the pictures at the end. He shows the pictures and like the ones that he took with the lighter look exactly the same as his giant <laughs> camera with the giant flash. <laughs> I love how he manages so. to conceal the giant camera throughout the entire party scene. Yeah, it just magically appears, and he's taking pictures, and she doesn't seem to notice. And then he has nowhere to put it once it magically appears. So he, now he's just running around with it. <laughs> this is why I think like her character was so dumb. Because Well, all the characters, they all kind of had their moments where they did that. You know, like the boss at the beginning when he kind of, you know, he kind of dupes um, Joe's character. You know, the princess gets duped like a hundred million times. <laughs> yeah. the, then Irving's character gets duped when he, you know, keeps spilling shit on him. Oh, and what he about, the, get the, what about the landlord who Joe yeah. tells the landlord, you have to guard the door to my apartment. He comes home and the landlord is walking back and forth with a with a rifle guarding the apartment. <laughs> And then, like, the, the random housekeeping lady walks in and, like, yells at the princess for whatever oh, reason. Oh, yeah, why is she so mad at her? They never explain that. <laughs> and then she never appears again. Yeah, it's like it she tries to random... get, She tries to get the princess out of the bathroom, and then the princess just goes back into the bathroom, and that's the end of the scene. Yeah, it, the scene made no sense whatsoever. I don't, I don't get where that scene came from. And, like, a lot of things happened, like, way too conveniently for me. Again, where Irving shows up at the restaurant, they just happen to be there. The thing about the cafe 
is that Irving had said he was meeting his date at the cafe in half an hour. So I think that she, I think that he coaxed her into going to that specific cafe because he knew oh, that he was going to meet him there. Okay, that that makes sense. I I must have missed that because uh, Joe did say, I know a great place. He he chose the place. So that makes sense. Yeah. And in the beginning of the film, I'm just thinking, why is he letting her go? Why doesn't he just ask, him, ask her all these questions? Like, he already did her a favor. She kind of owes him. And then instead, he just kind of follows her. <laughs> yeah, that was a little creepy. <laughs> which, is, which is a little weird. Oh, and then he's looking for a camera. And so he tries to steal a camera from, like, a toddler. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that happened today? If you you're a teacher and you turn and you see an older man like assaulting your ten year old student. Yeah, it, it was funny. A lot of things that like wouldn't wouldn't cut it in today's time. So you were talking about it earlier, right? Oh, there's just no way this movie could exist in 2018. Like if you made it modern, you couldn't do it because everyone had cell phones and everyone would recognize her. There's also like that weird roofy drug that the doctor gives her that's never really explained in the beginning that's kind of the whole setup for the movie which is a weird setup for like a romantic comedy in the 50s it's like some weird doctor just injects this woman with a drug and then uh romance yeah <laughs> but I, I guess that was like the the 1950s version of nyquil i guess but it like didn't kick in for like two hours because she decided after she took the whatever it was roofies or sedative or nyquil she like gets dressed sneaks out which it feels like an hour <laughs> it takes her an hour to sneak out of this palace <laughs> she like jumps out a window then she goes down some stairs then she goes this way then she goes that way then she jumps into the back of like a truck <laughs> takes her like a year to oh sneak yeah that out. just doesn't get inspected when it leaves <laughs> when it leaves the premises <laughs> <laughs> and it's like she has all this time and then she only gets sleepy like a little later after that yeah well it takes and some then, time to kick in yeah and then she doesn't wake up for like a day and a half <laughs> yeah i don't know was the dr bill cosby uh maybe <laughs> i i don't know No, it wasn't he was not bill cosby because i did not see one black person in this entire movie talk about whitewashed talk about things not holding up in modern times can you imagine a movie like this coming out in 2018 with not a single character who wasn't white irving could have easily easily been a black actor but that oh, just yeah, that, wasn't that, that, how that's it was back where then. every character either speaks english or is just flat out american <laughs> yeah yeah in italy my favorite character in the film though is this uh, hairstylist <laughs> oh yeah oh how <laughs> where they're just arguing how weird is it so you're introduced so this hairstylist like you meet the hairstylist and he has a mustache and then you meet him again later and he's shaved yeah he wanted to look good for the dance party i guess and then they're just like <laughs> oh you shaved your mustache and he's like yep i did and that's that's it for the mustache i guess like it was so weird because he <laughs> I, I guess he had to shave it for another film and they wrote that line in just to make it make sense <laughs> <laughs> for the assholes like you who picked that shit out. <laughs> they should have just, no, it wasn't that it wasn't that it bothered me. It was just that I really didn't recognize him and I needed them to say, Hey, this is the hairdresser from earlier. And then they did. So I was appreciative oh, okay. of that, but it was like, why would you make your character unrecognizable? It didn't seem to have a purpose. Another convenient thing that just happens <laughs> is like those guys that are looking for her the lost princess are just chilling at the party well it's the party so it takes place on a barge on the water and i think you can see the barge from her window 
in the palace. Oh, is that the same party yes, that she was looking that's at? That's originally why she wanted oh. to run away. So that's why that's sort of the climactic scene is she ends up at the party that she escaped to sort of get to. That was like her fairy tale you know, uh, moment. Okay, and I didn't make that connection, but that makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that I think that that's why that was where they staged that climactic fight scene, where they fight off all the guards and then they end up jumping in the water, and then when they're all wet is when they have their triumphant kiss, and after twelve wonderful hours together, they are fallen madly in love. <laughs> yeah super interesting and i love during that like ridiculous fight scene with all the dudes in black suits <laughs> that she takes the guitar from the band dude and the band dude's not mad at all and she's about to smack the dude over the head with the the guitar and then the whole band just drum rolls kind of waiting for her to smack the dude oh, with yeah. the guitar <laughs> hilarious slapstick moment <laughs> yeah yeah i really liked so i guess there are two iconic scenes in this one is the vespa scene and the second scene is when they're at the Mouth of Truth, which is this giant marble face, which is actually... Yeah, it looks like Omek, yeah. the stone head from <laughs> Legends of the Hidden Temple. Yeah. Did you like that scene? Because that was, sort of a, that was sort of a symbolic scene because they're both lying to one another. Yeah, that was pretty cute. And that, was that right after the police scene or is that before it? Oh, I don't know. Where do they get the Vespa from, anyway? That's also a good question. I don't remember. She, they're just, like, riding on the Vespa, and the other dude's just taking photos of her while he's in the car. <laughs> and another another proof to your, your point about how stupid she is, <laughs> is he goes, look over there! And then when she's looking away, the dude <laughs> yeah. takes out the camera and takes a photo, and then look over there! And then they take the same photo again. Yeah. So apparently that is the oldest Vespa in the world today. It's the oldest remaining Vespa. Oh, they still have the Vespa? Yeah, it sold for like 200,000 euro last year at an auction. So to, to inform the audience a little bit, I did a little background research on um, like rear projection. So before green screen, they had to find a way to sort of project an image behind actors and actresses so that it looked like they were driving. And to do this, they had a rear, what's called a rear projection, and they basically produce an image in reverse and project it on the back of a screen. And then, you know, obviously the image flips and what you see behind the actors is that flipped image. And I didn't think about this, but you couldn't do that without shutter synchronization, which didn't come until they had to sync sound for talkies. That is really cool. And it's it's got that weird old movie, like car backgrounds look to it. Yeah, it's like, that whoa. Rear, rear projection where it's just kind of dancing around the screen. <laughs> yeah. But I thought they did a good job of blending it. Like they did stunt work and they had the projection at the same time. So it kind of worked. But then in the end, in the end, what I really like about the ending is instead of giving the PC answer to the question, what was your favorite part of the trip? She just comes out and she says, it was Rome. Rome was my favorite. So even though she's back trapped in her own little princess world, she still gained a little bit of individuality. Awesome. Any final thoughts on the film? No, I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, I don't think it addressed any of the important things that were going on in the world at the time, like the Korean War or Stalin dying or Marilyn Monroe being the first cover girl on in Playboy magazine. But it did a good job of being a fun movie. And sometimes that is the best movie, is a movie that you can just enjoy and not have to really think too much. Yeah, I think this is a, this is a movie for everyone. 
I think anyone, any age, any you know, from any background can kind of watch this and follow the story, enjoy, enjoy the ride. I think it might be that time, Matt. Yeah, I think it's that time, Bob. Uh, I did some research during the break, and we don't have a lot of movies to choose from here. In fact, we only have three movies to choose from. Wings, which was the winner in 1928, Seventh Heaven, and The Racket are our three nominees for next week's topic. Without further ado, next week the podcast goes to Seventh Heaven. I don't even know I don't even know where we're gonna be able to watch this movie. <laughs> maybe maybe someone's performing the play nearby. <laughs> yeah. Catch, catch our local theater. <laughs> they do do uh Shakespeare in the park in this little little field right next to my building. Oh cool. <laughs> maybe they'll do Seventh Heaven. <laughs> it looks like it's available for free on YouTube, so <laughs> for free yeah <laughs> you can just watch it on youtube yeah well, i think it's past their the copyright limitations at this point right i guess so it's old as fuck <laughs> well oh, i man. guess we'll be discussing that next week on the podcast goes too i hope you'll all join us and we will see you next time <laughs>